think it was in one of my college classes, the, uh, the professor who was teaching the preaching class said that when you were speaking, you didn't necessarily need to show all of your work. How many of you, when you were doing a problem, were encouraged to show your work? Yeah? Okay. Because uh, you can have the right answer, but if you don't know how you got there, or if you can't show someone else how to do it, then it's not as helpful. And so what we're going to be doing uh, tonight, and hopefully two nights from now, maybe a little bit longer, depending on how far we get tonight, is uh, trying to show our work as we read through a passage of Scripture, think about what it means, ask certain questions of the text, and then hopefully understand it better as a result. And so open your Bibles to Jude if you're not already there. And... Um, Let's see here. Did I put my paper in the row by you? Hmm. I had it a few minutes ago. Sure. No, I had one that I wrote things down, but I think I remember what I wrote. So I'll go off of this one. So uh, if anybody happens on the other one, don't, don't cheat it. Look at the answers, right? Oh, here it is. I, ho I folded it into my Bible. There you go. All right. I've almost got things organized in my office, but there's still a few things where I can't remember if I left it at home or on my desk, and so I'm still trying to figure that out. Sometimes I feel that with things I'm carrying around the house. So, uh, all right. To the text. How many of you had an opportunity to read the introduction this afternoon? Okay. Uh, for the benefit of those who haven't gone through the intro or who weren't able to be with us this morning, we'll just really quickly um, look at that. Uh, there's several people called Jude. The one that we're looking at as the author of this book is Jude, who is the brother of James, both of whom were half-brothers of Jesus Christ. And you can uh, look at your sheet for more details on that. Uh, this would have been written at an early date, AD 45 or 50, uh, around a similar time to when James was written. Jude's audience is not specific. It's not the church at so-and-so, like Paul often wrote. It's not necessarily even to a specific group delineated by a common experience, like James's letter to those who are scattered abroad. Uh, but rather it is to those who have been called, loved by God the Father, and kept by Jesus Christ. Which also includes us today, and so there's a great number of applications that can be made from this to us today. Originally, he was going to write about our common salvation, but now he has to write to contend for the faith against false teachers while persevering in Christ. So now the contending against false teachers is uh, the part that we're looking at tonight. So, number, number one, what does it mean to be called what does it mean to be kept by God? Maybe we can have some of the kids answer this if you thought about that a little bit. Can you tell me what one of those means? Okay, good. So God continues to hold on to his people. What does it mean to be called by God? Maybe one of the other kids. What does it mean to be called 
by God. Good. So God brings us to salvation. So we could say that God saves and that God preserves us. The, the way, when we're looking at it from our perspective on the second one, we talk about perseverance of the saints. When we're looking at it from God's perspective, God preserves his people. All right? Good. Before we move on to the next question, I just want to highlight something about Jude that um, sometimes we overlook. Jude describes himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is a pretty interesting thing for him to say if Jesus is his half-brother, right? But this, what, what might that show about Jude if he says, I'm the bondservant of Jesus Christ, even though he's my half-brother? Okay, good, humility. And uh, I think Paul had a sense of humility because of his recognition of the persecution of the church that he had committed. Jude had a sense of humility because, not to the extent that Paul did, but he too had also rejected Christ early on, he and the rest of Jesus' brothers. And it wasn't until later on after Jesus' death that they had come to faith in Christ. All right, uh, look now to verse 3. What was the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints? Okay. How many agree? How many think that it's something else or something more? Okay. Uh, is it the faith that we ought to possess in Jesus Christ? That's Jesus' work in the cross. When he says the faith, does he mean salvation or does he mean something else? Okay. He says, I, I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation. I felt it necessary, or that felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. So he was wanting to write about probably like, kind of like what Paul does in Ephesians 1. Here's the glories of the salvation that God has given to us. But then, because of what he's aware of with their circumstances due to the opposition of false teachers, he says, and now I'm telling you, contend for the faith. So they're related, but one would have been a very positive, like, here are things to rejoice in because you're a Christian, but what he's writing now is you need to fight for something. So is the thing he's fighting for salvation? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, good. What else? Yes. Okay. 
Okay. So there's a core of teaching by Jesus, by the apostles, that we would sum up as the gospel and, and other truths of the New Testament. And those core things which lead to salvation are the things that we have to hold on to, that we have to fight for, that the false teachers are trying to corrupt. Look, for example, at... Um, we'll look at verse 4. At the end of verse 4, it says, There are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, who is it that Jude is warning against in verse 4? What's that? Yeah. Those who deny Christ? Here. Okay, good. So if we had to put a label on them, we could say false teachers. And then the specific false teaching is probably the sort of thing that Paul condemns in Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounded more. Should we sin more so there's more grace? May it never be. And uh, Jude is opposing people who are false teachers who are doing the same sort of thing. Um, so... There's the, the core of the gospel message, the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, the way of salvation that needs to be contended for against those who would change it. What are the two main ways that that could be changed, the gospel message? Okay, good. You could add to, you could take away. What are some examples of that? Okay, Jesus plus Moses, good. What else? Okay. What else? What are some of the heresies that have taken away from core gospel truths? Okay, in various ways. He wasn't really God, he wasn't really man. What else? Okay. Good. So there, there's this thing that we must hang on to, this core of gospel truth, and Judah's saying, contend for that against false teachers. And, and then the, the bulk of this section that we're looking at tonight talks about what those false teachers are like. Note the questions there under number three. What does it mean that they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation? Okay, and I'm sure you've probably heard different perspectives on what specifically that means. There's probably three or four main ones. It says that they were long ago marked out for condemnation. If we had to go under the heading of the subject of something that people would sometimes call predestination. Or, or election, right? So, are they... People who are, um, God knew they were going to be bad, and so God said, here's what's going to happen to you because I know that you're going to be bad. 
Or did um, God say, I am going to save these people and I'm going to pass over these people with the result that the people who are passed over will have condemnation, some of whom will be false teachers? Or did God, by an equal sort of choice, for lack of a better word, say, these people go in the bucket of salvation, these people go in the bucket of condemnation? Which of those three do you think this passage is saying? Or does the passage say enough to pick between one of those three? So we do see warnings, for example, Paul in Acts 20, Jesus' words. The one tension with that is, does it satisfy the phrase long ago? And that's, that's one of the arguments that people get into back and forth. If Jesus said something about them and now 15 years later, is that long ago or is that not a long enough period of time has elapsed to be considered long ago? Um, some will tie it in to the words of Enoch in verses 14 and 15 as that being the, the prophecy long ago that certain men would be marked out for condemnation. Um, and that only fits in a general sort of sense that God will punish the wicked. And, and we'll talk more about that as we get a little bit closer. First uh, Peter 2.8 says something similar. And these two passages, I think, are closely related. Jesus is the stone which the builders rejected, which became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. So, um, the reality is that there's a tension between all those positions, right? If we say that God sort of looked down the line and said this person I know is going to make these wrong choices and, and so I'm going to bring them to condemnation we feel more comfortable with that but there are passages where God's appointing seems to be tied not merely with his knowledge but also with the exercise of his will and not to go into too far into a deep theological topic, but what's the relationship between God's knowledge and God's purpose? Does God know things because he is working out his sovereign plan in the world, or does God know things just because he can see the future? Sometimes we think of God that he's sort of like um, the person who's the magician who has the crystal ball, or the person who is the time traveler and knows the future because they've got all this insider knowledge. But in those stories, what, what's the difference between that and the picture that the Bible gives of God? 
they can't do anything about it, right? Or when they do try to do things about it, they mess everything up, right? God, I think, knows the future because he knows what he's purposed to do. He knows what he's carrying out. The correction to that, the thing that we have to be careful of, is recognizing the reality that we cannot impute evil to God. So, for example, someone can't say, I sinned because God said I was going to sin and I couldn't do anything but sin. And so there's a little bit of an element of mystery in thinking about how all those things fit together. So I don't want to necessarily resolve the conflict in your mind. I just want you to think more about it. And for the one, the second half of Jude, I'll try to give you the questions sooner in advance so we can think more carefully about it. The simple fact, regardless of where you land with those three positions, is this. God anticipated their sin. God said this is the result of their sin. God says these people will be condemned. And so I think we can certainly say that clearly from the text. Which leads to the question of what the sin was. We see with question four, um, well, going back to the question of adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel, are these false teachers adding to the gospel or taking away from the gospel? Okay, but if you have to pick one, Okay. Got to pick one. I'm going to argue that they were taking away from the gospel. Because if they were adding to the gospel, the typical error of adding to the gospel was saying something like Jesus plus Moses, that kind of thing. That was the most common addition to the gospel. Jesus plus following the law of Moses means that you can be saved. That's the discussion in Acts 14, 15, kind of in there. Um, or, or even the book of Galatians. But here... They're saying God, uh, salvation means, uh, as Paul will later say, God saves you so that you'll live in good works. And they're saying, you can keep living however you want. God, the gospel's not going to change you. You just believe stuff, and then you keep doing whatever you want. There are people today that I think have also wrongly argued and said that you can be a Christian even if no one else can tell it because you look exactly like not a Christian because you check the box of praying the prayer to God. Then in turn, they accuse people who say there ought to be a transformation in your life as adding to the gospel. But the only reason it looks like that to them is because they took the gospel, took something away from it, and now if you go back to what the gospel says, it looks like you're adding something to it. Um, so we have to watch out for that. Um, I think that they were taking something away from the gospel. So go to question four then. We see three groups of people who are condemned by God. Verse five is the Israelites, or at least some of the Israelites. Verse six, angels who did not keep their own domain. Verse seven, Sodom and Gomorrah. Is there, or what is the common sin between these three? Yes. Okay, they all wanted to go their own way against God's authority. What else? Okay. 
What else? They didn't trust God. So look at the end of verse 5. He subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Look at numbers, or verse 6. Angels did not keep their own domain. Which, what's a word for crossing over the line that God has drawn for us? Rebelling or transgression? But what's the root cause of transgression? Unbelief. I would argue the common sin between all these three, which is tied into what you said too, Robert, is unbelief. They're going their own way because they don't believe what God wants, what God has said. And their unbelief leads them down slightly different expressions of sin. For the Israelites, what was their primary sin in the wilderness? At least the outward sign of their sinful hearts. I would say that's the inward thing that's going on. Grumbling. They grumbled over and over again. Which was the thing that led to so many of them dying in the wilderness because they came to the land. They didn't believe that God could do what He wanted. They grumbled against the fact that God had brought them there. And so God set them to die in the wilderness, right? Was the, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe... Uh, does that mean that you can lose your position in God's, of being among God's people? If not, then why not? Okay, God keeps us, right? We're going to see that later in the book. But why else? Why, why was it that this verse can say, God destroyed those he had saved, he had delivered, why does he append the phrase, who did not believe? Think about the group of the Israelites. Why were they Israelites? Because they were born as Israelites, right? Did that mean that all of them followed God the way they were supposed to, just because they were born as Israelites? No. So you had two groups in Israel. You had the Israelites who believed God and the Israelites who didn't believe God. God blessed the entirety of the nation for reasons connected with his promise to bless Abraham, but only those who were, um, who obeyed, who followed him, were truly his people in, in, in the best sense of the word. And so when he destroyed those who did not believe, that doesn't mean that today you can lose your salvation. It rather means that showed the ones that God judged because they weren't actually following him even though they were born into his covenant people. Look at the one about angels in verse 6. What was the primary sin of the angels? Probably a couple different ways you could say it. What's the one we usually attribute to Satan? Pride. God had said, here's your job, here's your task. They... We don't have a great detail, a great amount of detail on all of this in the Bible, but as best we can tell from all of the different things that the Bible says about angels, some of them seem to have said, God made me to do this, but I think I should do this instead. And they went their own way, probably motivated by pride. So their unbelief was demonstrated in pride. 
which we usually think of pride as like the reason that we do something as opposed to an expression of unbelief, but I think you could argue that it is. What was the specific sin that they did connected with their unbelief, connected with their pride? Okay. Look at verse 6. What's the second phrase there? They left their domain. They abandoned their proper abode. God had said, here's your sphere in which you're supposed to live and work and act. Uh, a lot of people connect this passage with Genesis 6. And so in Genesis 6, it says that, um, that the sons of God came down and had interactions with, um, uh, what does it say? The, Genesis 6. The sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, right? They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. I think I would be most comfortable with, and we talked about this when we went through Genesis, either the understanding that the sons of God were descendants of Seth, but then in light of the passage in Jude, there's some tension with that perspective, or at the very least, that the sons of God are acting through human beings in a kind of a demon possession by whom they are indirectly acting out their desires contrary to what God had called them to do. God had called them to be messengers, to be servants, to praise Him, all those sorts of things. God had not called them to live as human beings. And so, whether they are stirring up trouble among human beings as unseen, behind-the-scenes people, whether they are actively possessing people, uh, resulting in various kinds of things that are, un that are displeasing to God. The end result would be, God said, here's where you're supposed to be. They said, we're going to go over here and do these other things according to what we want to do. And the end result of that was what? God put them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. What was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah from our study this morning in Genesis, or from verse 7. I want, I want one of the kids to answer this, because I'm just i curious your perspective from what we looked at this morning. What was the sin of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah? Ben? Okay, good. Specifically, God, it's... Yes? Okay. Specifically, in the context of with their bodies, with their understanding of relationships between men and women, God had said it was supposed to be one way. They said, we'll do whatever we want. Verse 7 says, they indulged in gross immorality. And so, um, the expression of unbelief for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah was immorality which actually was pretty consistent with the example of the Canaanites every time we encounter them in the Old Testament. If you think back about the history of the Canaanites, over and over again, the thing that God warns the Israelites about and the thing that they're seeing doing is living in an immoral way. They wanted Baal to be pleased, they wanted the Ashtoreth to be pleased, and so they would commit immorality 
in some effort to please the gods that they believed in. Okay. Then number five. What then is the connection between the sins of verses 5 to 7 and the sin that we see in verse 8? So verse 8, he goes back to talking about the false teachers, but he draws a connection between verses 5 to 7 and then the sins of the false teachers in verse 8. What's the connection that he's making there? Okay. What else? Okay, they defile their flesh. All right. So the question, I guess, that I'm asking, and the question that I was thinking about as I was going through these few verses... Did they sin in the same ways as Jude's three examples? Right. So when it says defile the flesh in verse 8, does that correspond to verse 7, for example? Okay, does sound the same. Well, let's, uh, let's work on that assumption and let's go to the next one. Reject authority. Which one does that line up with? Okay. Revile angelic majesties. Which one does that line up with? And, and, and this is where we might have, we, we can come to Scripture with a kind of a working hypothesis. Here's what we think the text means, but then we have to look and see, does it actually match up? The tension is, if we say reviling angelic majesties is uh, the angels not respecting the job that God had given them, but that starts to sound like a stretch, right? So it's probably better to say that instead of saying their outward expressions of sin were exactly the same as the three examples given in the previous verses, to see that in the same way is probably more tied to the unbelief that stands behind the outward expressions of sin than with the specific sinful expressions. In other words, these three examples of judgment didn't believe God, God judged them. These men also don't believe God, they by dreaming, and the, the by dreaming is, is uh, another puzzling thing. What do you think it means by dreaming? Here. Okay. So if we make it a parallel to like a Joseph Smith kind of thing, right, possibly, I got my false teaching by a kind of a vision, and so this was an angel of God that told it to me, and this is why you should follow it. So that's one possibility. What else? Okay. 
Okay. Okay, and we'll definitely see evidence of that later in the passage. Uh, it, maybe it has the sense of by dreaming from the perspective of like scheming against God. Instead of saying, here's what God said we should believe, here's what God said we should do, we are going to dream and come up with our own ideas about how things are supposed to be. Whichever of those three that it is, are all of those demonstrations of unbelief? I think we'd say yes, right? So, we have false teachers against whom Jude says we must contend for the body of truth that is the teaching of Jesus and the apostles about what it means to, to trust in Jesus, what it means to be one of his followers. These men are coming along and saying, you don't have to believe what Jesus and the apostles have said. You can, because God has given you grace, do whatever you want and still call yourself a Christian. Jude then says, watch out for them because by this they're denying our only Master and Lord. And here's three reasons why you shouldn't believe what they're saying and follow their teaching. God punished the Israelites, God punished the angels, God punished Sodom and Gomorrah. In the same way that they demonstrated unbelief and sin and led to God's judgment, these men demonstrate unbelief and various kinds of sin. I think what we're going to do is pause there and pick up in two weeks. So if you had to walk away and say, at least from the part of the text that we've looked at tonight, what is Jude's main point? What would you say that it would be? What's the most important phrase in this section? Okay? And how do we know that? I agree with you, but how do we know that's the most important thing, that's the thing that he wants us to take away from at least the first half of the letter? Okay, so the way the rest of the text supports that phrase. What else? Okay, so that's his purpose statement. He basically says, this is my purpose statement, so this is what I'm writing you about. So if we came to a passage like this, and we said that it was about uh, don't listen to angelic visions, that might be something that it, we could see in the text, but that would not be the main point, because that's just something that's underneath this sort of main idea of we need to contend for the faith against false teachers. And so, the reason I'm pointing this out, and it may feel like I'm sort of belaboring the point, is because sometimes when we first glance at a passage, we'll have one idea about it. Sometimes when we read a commentary, it will give us a particular idea about the passage, and we need to make sure that we're looking at the structure of the text and the various phrases that are in here, especially in the epistles. In narrative, it's a little bit different, but especially when it comes to a letter, there's usually an opening, some hint of what the letter is about, and then various themes that support those main ideas. And we need to kind of look for those clues in the text 
so that we make sure that we're understanding it correctly and, uh, and using God's Word rightly. So, uh, if you didn't have opportunity to fill out questions uh, 6 through 12, I would encourage you to do that. And I will have more of them in the event that you lose them between now and two weeks from now, because I know that sometimes happens. Uh, next week is going to be our potluck. And in the afternoon service, we are going to go over the proposed church commitments that we talked about in Sunday school for three, four weeks, maybe longer than that. Um, and just sort of have another conversation about it as hopefully most of the church together in anticipation of potentially voting on those at the business meeting in January. And then two weeks from tonight, we'll pick this back up, probably finish the first half of the book, and then, uh, then go on from there. So hopefully this is helpful. It requires some thought. It requires some work. It may feel like it's a little bit like more academic kind of stuff. But I think it's helpful for us as we look at God's Word to not just think about what it says, but like I said at the beginning, how do we get to the right answer as we're going through the text? So let's pray, and then we'll stand and sing our closing hymn. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your Word together tonight. We pray that you would help us to use your Word rightly. We pray that as we see these warnings against false teachers, that we would be aware that there is truth that needs to be fought for, that there are people we need to watch out for. And as we see even more about what those people are like in coming weeks, Lord, help us to just have a very clear sense that it's not just, well, they're a little bit off on one or two things, but that these people are deadly and dangerous and destined for destruction. And so, Lord, help us to watch out for them to not listen to their false teaching, and to hang on to the truth that you have said is important. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.